The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There is a text that goes back to supposedly the time of the Buddha that is the foundational text for the whole practice of mindfulness. And it's called the four, the text is usually translated into English as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And it gives a series of uh, approaches of how to develop mindfulness. And um, there's actually 13 different kind of exercises for developing mindfulness. And after each exercise, there's a refrain. Uh, and the refrain talks a little bit about the purpose of practicing mindfulness, where it's supposed to uh, lead you. And there's one line that uh, talks about the purpose. There's a number of things it mentions, but I want to mention one tonight today. And it says that um, when practice is mindfulness, to become um, independent, not clinging to anything in the world. To become independent, not clinging to anything in the world. It said that someone who becomes spiritually mature in this Buddhist practice becomes independent in the Dharma. So independent in their practice, independent in their spiritual life. This idea of being independent is uh, a very important value in this ancient tradition. And to some degree, it's important in America, the idea of being independent. I don't know if it's the same meaning. The, um, and what I'd like to do is uh, to give two talks uh, today and next Sunday of two different sides of this approaching this idea of being independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And um, the, the refrain, part of the refrain, talks about doing this internally and externally. So internally, how do we do it for ourselves? How do we do it with our inner life, focusing inward in a sense, becoming independent and not clinging to anything? And that's often the direction that people think about meditation. They think often it has to do with our inner world. We close our eyes, we become internal, and we negotiate our mind. But Buddhist practice has a lot to do with the external world as, as well, and the, the social world, the world we live with other people, and how we live that, wor- that world, the social world, wisely. And so there's a, the external side of mindfulness. And so I thought that next week I would talk about uh, dwelling independent, not clinging to anything in the world, uh, in, this, in our relationships in the world, the wise relationships, compassionate relationships we can have with the people around us. So that's kind of the plan. And so today, this internal world of becoming independent, um, the word uh, dependent in Pali uh, could also be translated as attached or uh, clinging to something. So not dependent on, not attached to, not clinging on, not resting on. Resting is another word that's used for kind of translating this word, nisito. And uh, so I want to tell you a story from uh, the ancient world, which is, I think, kind of a touching story, these ancient texts. Um, And that is uh, one of the, has to do with the deathbed counseling uh, instructions that uh, one of the important uh, supporters of the Buddha received. There was a man named Anattapindika, and uh, that was his nickname, and uh, because... (laughs) Oh, that was funny. <laughs> not that long name, not the Pindiga. And um, 
And uh, what, it me- what it means is feeder of the poor. And he was uh, a wealthy man. Apparently he gave a lot of alms to the poor and the people who were hungry. And uh, he met the Buddha in, in the first year of the Buddha's teaching. And he um, was so impressed that he went and bought a large piece of property for the Buddha to become his, the Buddha's a grove of trees for to become the Buddha's first monastery. And uh, Buddha spent many ta- many years in this particular, often coming back to this particular uh, forest or grove of trees to live in. And um, so he was an important um, disciple of the Buddha, wealthy supporter. Um, the Buddha, there's a lot of record of uh, nine, ten teachings the Buddha gave to him, uh, most, mostly ethical, uh, how to live a good ethical life. So at some point, Anandapintika was dying, and he, um, uh, and the Buddha's uh, main disciple, Sariputta, went to see him. And Sariputta came to Sariputta's bedside and said, um, I hope you're faring well. I hope your pain is subsiding. And Anandapindika said, no, I'm not faring well, and my pain is increasing. And, it's, uh, and then he described in kind of graphic detail um, the tremendously the piercing pain he had in his head, his stomach, and what was going on. Remember back then, just 2,500 years ago, and they, did not, they did not have palliative care. So you were kind of left with your pain as you were dying. So he said, I'm not faring well, I'm in piercing pain. And uh, so then Sariputta said, um, in that case, then he started giving him uh, what I think of as a guided meditation because it was a systematic, very thorough, uh, almost kind of a little bit repetitive instructions about how not to cling or what not to cling to. And, um, And he went through, I don't know, something like could easily be, um, I don't remember the account now, but 40, 40 or so different areas of our life that uh, not to cling to. And the areas were kind of the domain of everything. It concludes everything. So the way you can uh, uh, approach everything very quickly, all, the, all this world of ours, is to realize that the whole world we live in, the way that we experience it is mediated through our senses. So if, you, uh, if there's an object of sight, there's, there's an infinite number of maybe objects of sight that you can be looking at. And to go through and enumerate all the ones not to cling to, you spend a long time. But if you say um, uh, objects, don't cling to any objects of sight, that kind of deals with everything that comes in through your eyes. And so you did the same thing with uh, objects of hearing objects of tasting, of smelling, of um, uh, the, uh, the uh, tactile sense of the body, and then uh, what's called the sense door in Buddhism of the mind. So there's a way, I guess Buddhist psychology has this assumption, almost like there's a, a particular sense apparatus in the mind through which you become aware of your thinking or feeling or um, you know, have intentions or the whole inner world. Um, just like you would through your eyes, you would see sights. In this inner eye, you'd see what goes on in the mind. So if you don't cling to any of the things at the six sense doors, 
then you're really not clinging to anything in the world. So you cover everything just by saying that. But then people will say, well, that's, that's fine. This is very important in the old world. Um, that, well, the, um, it's fine not to cling to the sense object, things you see, but who we really are is the perceiver, the one who perceives. And so then he went through in all the different ways that we can know that there's a, it's a sense of being, the one that, that, that which perceives, and said, don't cling to that. And, um, and they said, well, I'm not the perceiver, I'm not what's seen, but I'm not, what I'm, you know, not, not, I'm not what's seen through my eyes. I'm not the seer who sees through the eyes, but I must be my eye. You know, I'll cling and hold on to my eyes. So then he goes through and says, don't, all that eye, ear, nose, tongue, don't cling to that as well. So when you read this as a, as this text, uh, it gets boring really quickly. <laughs> because, you know, he goes through this, you know, uh, so he says, um, uh, so I'll give you a little, a very short taste of it. Um, So, sorry, Puta is speaking to Anathapindika who's dying. And uh, I'll get, kind of give you a, a little, to make it a little bit more po- poignant what's going on here. Soon after uh, sorry, Puta finishes this, uh, uh, Anathapindika dies. So this is pretty, you know, significant perhaps. So, um, so Anathapindika says, My painful feelings are increasing, not, not subsiding. Um, so then Sariputta says then you should train yourself thus I will not cling to the eye and my consciousness will not be dependent on the eye you should train yourself thus I will not cling to the ear and my consciousness will not be dependent on the ear I will not cling to the nose and my consciousness will not be dependent on the nose. I will not cling to the tongue and my consciousness will not cling. Uh, my consciousness will, will, be, will, will not be dependent on the tongue. I will not cling to the body and my consciousness will not be dependent on the body. I will not cling to the mind and my consciousness will not be dependent on the mind. And then he goes, uh, and then he does this, uh, the things that you know through your eyes sight objects and all that and goes through the same thing and the refrain that goes over and over again kind of a rhythm kind of a you know is um, I will not be dependent on my consciousness will not be dependent on these things and so if you imagine this not as a kind of a treatise you know just someone kind of writing a you know philosophical document and you're supposed to read it and be interested but it's a kind of a guided meditation imagine that uh, he's dying and his respected teacher comes to him, and he kind of says, "Well, here." And he puts in the first person, uh, for, you know, uh, first person the statements, as if uh, Ananda Pindaka is going to follow. He's going to say the same thing for himself. This is how you train yourself. You say this to yourself. You do this for yourself. My mind, my consciousness will not be dependent on these things. And so he goes through all these lists over and over, you know, different ways, different ways of covering everything. And um, and uh, and, may, and I can imagine that listening to someone like this, that you get kind of concentrated. Your world kind of, you know, you don't think about. Probably he wasn't thinking about his wealth anymore. 
all the, all the money in his treasury, and probably wasn't thinking about his taxes. <laughs> or, you know, he probably wasn't thinking about, you know, what he was going to have for dinner. There's all kinds of things that just kind of fell away. And, and as often does when people are dying, and also people, people who are in the presence of someone who's dying, that so much that seems important and relevant uh, kind of falls away in, in, the, in the very kind of strong sense of presence or stillness or uh, here and now that happens when someone's dying. And so in that context, he's saying, don't, you know, don't, don't let your consciousness be dependent on anything, these things over and over again. And I could imagine that uh, Ananda Pindika then, as he heard this, took it in as a guided meditation and kind of in a subtle way, maybe, or small way, began to let go, began to let go. Let go of the eye, let go of the ears, let go of what you see, let, lo- let go of what you think, let go. And kind of each time, kind of like, oh, okay, okay. And, um, and there's something really, really wonderful that can happen uh, if you get a sense, little sense of what it's like to let go, which means to release the contractions in the mind and the heart, the ways that we're held or contracted or tight, kind of let go of it, there's a little feeling of ease, a little feeling of relaxation, of openness that goes on. And that little piece of openness, if you tune into it, can feel very satisfying and can be a little bit of a guide to do more of it. Oh, this is good. This is good. And so, for, in the case of Ananda Pindika, I imagine that he was also then not f- focusing his mind on his pain. And this expression, uh, to uh, consciousness not dependent on, is an important concept in this ancient tradition because the idea is that um, um, uh, it would be kind of like, I think maybe the best way to say it in, in our world, um, don't have your mind preoccupied with anything. So don't, have, don't be fixated or obsessed about anything. Uh, don't let your mind be, be, um, be conditioned by the circumstances. Don't have your consciousness uh, hijacked or held hostage by the situation you're in. So uh, if you have uh, some trouble in your life that seems reasonable to address, uh, you sit down to meditate, you find it hard to let go of, and when you can't let go of it, then in some ways your, your, your consciousness is held hostage by your concern. And you're not free of your concern. You haven't been ind- you're not independent. Your consciousness is not independent. And so this ability to have consciousness kind of like an overarching possibility of observation, maybe, that is not pulled around or pulled into or pulled down uh, or weighed down by anything that you can think of or see or hear or be concerned with what's going on in the world. And so the mind lets go, lets go, lets go. This uh, kind of observing or conscious perception, the consciousness begins to open up, open up, and be freer and freer. And, um, and so it becomes not dependent on anything. Such a consciousness still can be very aware of the world, sight, sounds, smells, very aware of people and conversations and what's going on, very aware of yourself. But um, there's a kind of sense of freedom in the midst of it, sense of ease or peace in the midst of it, because a sound arises and it's just a sound. And it's not something like, oh, I have to get rid of that, or I want that, that's a nice sound, I want it. Or what is that? And, you know, we start to all kind of be concerned. 
Um, it was this very interesting sound just outside the window this morning. There's lots of you over there. I, I couldn't figure out what it was. It sounded very close. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, partly because I'm the teacher and a little bit responsible and, you know, um, my, uh, you know, it wasn't really completely independent of that sound for a few moments. Uh, I wasn't really pulled too far into it, but, uh, you know, I felt like it's my responsibility to be a little bit aware of what's going on and, and take care of the building or whatever. So, so, so some, of the, some of it was out of choice, which meant I was independent, I was free. But some of it also was like, I feel a little concerned, you know. I was concerned about the people sitting over there. And, you know, what are they going to think? And, and, uh, and so I was a little bit, my mind wasn't so completely free, right? Um, I could still take care of it and have a free mind, but I was pulled into those thoughts. Uh, uh, and so probably some of you also, meditating this morning, probably noticed that your mind got pulled into certain thoughts and concerns that it wasn't very easy to, be, to be pull yourself out of. You weren't independent of your concerns. You were kind of stuck in them, in a sense. So Ananda Pindika gets this instructions. I will, and so I'll read you another uh, little piece of it. Um, so in this way, if you think of it as a guided meditation, you know, and you're closing your eyes and just following along, then the, rep- the, the repetition of it all, it doesn't seem so boring anymore. Then it becomes kind of like, oh yes, oh yes, this, this too, this too, this too. Um, you should train yourself thus I will not cling to feelings born from eye contact from sight my consciousness will uh, dwell in the, well, uh, 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 my consciousness will not be dependent on feeling I will not cling to feeling born of ear contact my consciousness will, do, will be independent of, eye con- of feeling. I will not cling to feeling born of nose contact. My consciousness will be independent of feeling. I will not cling to feeling born of body contact. My consciousness will be independent of body contact. I will not cling to feeling born of tongue contact. My consciousness will be independent of tongue contact. I will not uh, cling to feeling born of mind contact. My consciousness will not be dependent on feeling. And then the last one I'll read here. I will not cling to this world. And my consciousness will not be dependent on this world. I will not cling to the world beyond and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. Remember, he's dying, right? So don't cling to this world, but also don't cling to some possible world in the future. And so um, when this uh, instructions was given, then um, when, the, uh, when it was finished, Ananda Pindika um, uh, wept and shed tears. And one of the monks who was there said, Are you foundering? Are you sinking? 
is it getting worse for you? And, uh, and he said, no. I am not foundering. I am not sinking. Um, but I've never heard such profound uh, teaching before. So then uh, they, they said their greetings and departed. And then uh, soon thereafter, it says, Ananda Pindika died. And I'd imagine that was hopefully a, a nice death. I know people who have been able to let go as they died. Let go, let go, let go. And, uh, and it, can, it can be sometimes quite peaceful. Uh, this seems particularly poignant because of Ananda Pindika being in so much pain. And um, sometimes there's maybe some biological mechanism that goes on very close to death where the pain doesn't seem to grab one. Or maybe the, the strength or the power of you know, being up against the edge of death, um, the mind becomes more and more likely to become independent of its concerns. And so there's no longer, even though there can be a lot of pain, the mind's just not going to go there because there's more important things going on. So this idea of uh, becoming independent, not clinging to anything in the world, is one of the big challenges of this tradition, that the mindfulness tradition. Uh, mindfulness is not, in Buddhist terms, is not about stress reduction. It's not about coping better and getting along in your life. It, it, those things are part of it for sure and very important part of the, the path of practice. But to take this mindfulness to its full potential, um, uh, it's pointing to a very radical capacity of mind, of consciousness, where our ability to be conscious, the ability for the mind to function, to be aware, uh, it really feels like it becomes free of anything that it can know. The awareness is free of anything we are, are aware of. The mind is free of anything it can think about. The mind is free of anything that we can feel. Meaning we don't get ruffled, we don't get troubled, we don't get uh, contracted, we don't get uh, somehow, we don't recoil. There's an ability for awareness, mind, heart, to stay open, receptive, free, uh, relaxed, and no matter what circumstances we're in. And uh, this is a beautiful capacity. And one of the ways that we cultivate this capacity in mindfulness practice is to start becoming aware of how we're not independent. Start becoming aware of how we get caught. And it's not a mistake, and it's, you're not like a failed human being because your mind has gotten caught up in its concerns. It's kind of like probably we're designed that way, <laughs> you know, to, to have, you know, very powerful forces within our mind to want to hold on and be concerned, be safe and get what we need or something. But it's not necessary. And it's possible to develop the mind to have a certain kind of strength and a certain kind of wisdom and compassion so that we learn how to be in the world, taking care of ourselves and be safe. Uh, without having the mind caught up or preoccupied. But the way to do, one of the ways to do that is to really start becoming aware, include in your mindfulness, the nature of your dependencies, the, way, the nature of how you get caught, how you um, react. Um, what, what is it you can't put down easily in your mind? What are the preoccupations that pull your consciousness this way and that way? And become become kind of like a... Uh, a connoisseur of how your mind works that way. Do it in a way that uh, you kind of take delight in getting to know your little foibles. 
um, be kind of open to it. And some people would be forgiving or be compassionate or be uh, spacious or allowing. Um, there's no need to, uh, uh, you know, if you want to become independent this way, consciousness is independent, you want to become independent of your foibles too, right? It doesn't, you know, if you, want to, you don't want to get caught up and feel bad about yourself and feel terrible, I'm, you know, I have these problems and all that. Uh, you know, it's just, okay, I have these foibles and my mind works, works this way and then see that clearly. And there's two things that can do. One is that um, you start understanding yourself better. You get, you get wiser about what goes on in your mind, the operating systems. And the wiser and clearer you can understand what's going on in there, um, the better you can negotiate and find your way and not get caught. And the second is that um, the more you focus on, the, uh, develop your strength of studying, of investigation, of seeing clearly what's there, the very act of seeing clearly starts feeling like you're finding your freedom. You don't have to be, you don't, something, you don't have to get rid of your foibles to be free. You have to kind of step back and see it clearly for what it is and not identify with it. So the idea that you have to get rid of something is just one more way to be dependent, one more way to be attached or be caught up in something. We don't have to get rid of something um, necessarily, but we have to step back so we can see it clearly. So as we practice more and more mindfulness, we start moving in that direction. And just maybe as Ananda Pindika, slowly with each step of the instructions he got, his mind released a little bit, released a little bit. So every time we, we have our mindfulness see clearly what's there without being for or against what's there, without making a story of what's there, and just maybe tell yourself, well, see clearly, I have a foible today. Imagine that. And maybe if you use the word foible, you probably haven't used that for a long time. <laughs> It'll help you kind of not be so concerned. Oh, just a foible. Um, so every time you see it, a little bit of you kind of releases, a little bit of you steps back, a little bit can hold it a little bit more spaciously. And then try to tune in to how that feels good. It might be 99% it feels kind of, you know, yucky to have a foible. But the 1% that feels like, ah, it's good to step back a little bit. A little smile because you called it a foible. You know, so then, then tune into that, appreciate that. Uh, the appreciation, the tuning into, what it feels like to let go. What it feels like to ex- be uncontracted, to expand, um, is a nourishing, supportive, guiding feeling. It's something that can show us the way, help us find our way. If the only thing we tune into is the 99% that feels terrible, uh, we probably just make it 100% or 99.9%. Um, now, we don't want to ignore the foibles, but we also we don't want to ignore what, how it feels good to let go and relax. So don't let go, let go. And then I'll tell you a story that uh, I've told many, maybe, maybe enough times, but I'm thinking of it again. Uh, many years ago, I did a weekend, I taught a weekend workshop on death and dying. It was kind of off in a retreat center someplace, kind of off the beaten path, I guess. And um, 
And I did a guided meditation with people where I asked them to imagine uh, that uh, they had 24 hours left to live. Or maybe it was seven days the first time. And then I reduced it in the course of the 40 minutes we meditated. So now imagine that you have, you know, 24 hours. Now imagine it's 12 hours. Now imagine that it's six hours. And each time, like, what would you do? Imagine that's what you have left. What would that be like for you? What are your reactions? What are your responses? How would that be for you? Then one hour. And then 10 minutes. And then one minute. And then what if it's now? And uh, it can be a very powerful exercise to do this as guided meditation because if you, if you can kind of imagine that it's kind of more or less real, it, you kind of get, you get to look at your priorities and you get to realize what is not so important. And maybe you get more and more what you can let go of the things that maybe are not so you know, needed with one hour left. And some people find it uh, really changes their priorities and how they want to live their life by doing this. So there were two people in, uh, that I, came up to me afterwards and explained to me what happened. Uh, one was actually came up some months later and she said, um, after that I decided to give up my job. <laughs> and, and inside I kind of gulped. I said, oh no, what have I done? And she said, I'm so happy. This was the right thing for me. The job I had, I've done it long enough. And, and uh, you know, so I, I, you know, there was my spiritual life to develop. There was practice, a whole other things that to do. And I realized at that moment, in that exercise, that I was ready for the next step. And then but in, the, in the workshop itself, this woman raised her hand and said, um, um, well, when I had, uh, you know, a day left, 12 hours left, six hours left, what I wanted to do was to go home and clean my apartment. <laughs> and I was wondering, wow, well, I guess, you know, different people have different priorities. And, um, but then when it got down to like one hour, she said something like, well, you see, I live three hours away. <laughs> so when it got down to one hour, then um, I realized I couldn't go home to clean my apartment. <laughs> and so uh, then I let go. So then, and then, you know, and that, and then the following, you know, time, the exercise was very meaningful for her to let go and experience what that's like in a deep way. So to dwell independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this is my attempt to try to do it more internally. Next week I'll try to do it a little more externally. Um, so we have about 10 minutes. Do you have any comments or questions? Oh. So if you can wait for the mic so that other people can hear. This um, may be silly, but what popped into my mind when you said clean the apartment, I would want to get rid of my journals. When I said, you know, I hate my husband when I... <laughs> yeah, because they're too personal. Yeah, and uh, maybe, like, maybe it could make sense. I, could, I don't know about you, but um, like that, you, you don't want to leave some behind that's going to hurt people. No, I think about that, and I throw journals away because of it. Seriously, yeah, when sure. it seems silly to throw journals away, but yeah, it seems a reasonable way of way of cleaning up beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I um I I always feel confused about the um kind of the way to let go. Um like I feel like we live in this world nowadays where it's so much about like like the word I heard the other day was untraceability and like there's so much of the world that seems like people are just like, Oh, that's not my problem <laughs> or it's not <laughs> it's like, well that's you know, your problem yeah. <laughs> or I created a problem and now it belongs to you. I yeah. so I always feel like like I guess I feel conflicted as a Buddhist because, you know, I wanna let go but I see so many like, forms of letting go where it's really like actually just oppression in some way or other? Yeah, yeah, I can, yeah, absolutely. It can be, um, that's why I wanted to give two talks. So, so next week is addressing that issue more, so please come back. <laughs> the um, um, uh, letting go does not mean indifference. Letting go does not mean that we're no longer involved with what needs to happen. Um, the, it just that means that we're, when we are involved with what needs to be taken care of, uh, we do it with more uh, ease. We do it with more less less violence and force towards ourselves or other people. Um, uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, there, there is problems with being too detached, with letting go. That's and it can be oppressive to others if someone tells you, "Oh, just let go." Um, you know, you know, if uh, your husband's beating you and. And you complain. He says, oh, "Just let go." <laughs> you know, it, it, sometimes people, oppressors do that. They tell people, right? So, it can be done the wrong way. But on the other hand, it can also people who want to help others, but do it with a lot of attachment. Um, that also can be have its problems. Probably, you know, but, but just as much problems there as well, as if you know, as we know, uh, in the, you know, like in the 1960s, a long time ago, there were. People who were advocating for uh, nonviolence, for ending war, and um, but they found that they were they were arguing and yelling at each other, and they were they didn't know how to kind of cooperate with each other, and it was quite painful because they didn't have this. They were so attached to what they were doing. Uh, so both both bo- both sides of this, there's weak points, there's problems that can be, be arise, but that the art of this is to learn how to uh, let go in a healthy way but stay connected. Um, let go and, and be response, responsive to what's there in a helpful way. And, um, so like, so when if, I let go, if I let go of this striker, um, I mean, I could let go of it and it just falls on top of the glass and the glass breaks, right? It's not wise. But I, could all, I, I can let go of it, release it, by just opening my hand like this and I'm still holding it. Just, it's not being held in an open hand. So it's more like that's the movement of letting go like this. It's not kind of discarding things. Make sense? And then I'll, I'll move to say, um, one of the really important things I learned in my graduate studies at Stanford was uh, I took a, a, a history class on, Jap- on Japanese history. And it might have been Buddhist history, I forget, Japanese Buddhist history. And uh, I guess we were, I don't know if it was midterms or some finals or I don't know what the circumstances was, but I, I was talking with a professor and there was some little detail of Japanese history. And, um, and I said to him, well, 
this um, well, this isn't so important. So this is not so important. So we don't have to study that, right? We don't have to memorize that. <clears throat> and he 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 looked at me kindly and he said, "Everything is important." And uh, and it's it struck me partly partly the authority. Yeah, I think he'd done some Zen practice, and I'd done a lot of Zen practice. And that's one of the teachings of Zen that I got, is everything's important. So how do you let go? And, but everything is important, too. You don't, you don't become then aloof and indifferent. Maybe one more? <coughs> or have you all let go? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Marilyn will pass you the mic. Um, uh, I don't know, living in a shelter kind of brings up every Zen thing possible, you know, because being mindful and living in a, in a cooperative type environment, it, it just brings up every... I could, I could probably share in, in every talk you give. <laughs> but um, um, last night... Um, I'm living in a new section of the shelter, and it's near the door, or my bed's near the door, and I can hear everything in the hallway, everything in the front office. I can hear the person talking on the payphone outside. Um, and my my new roommate across from me has some kind of mental illness that makes her like moan and 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 move around at night and like all night and. Um, so definitely last night I was practicing the being like, okay, what should I be doing right now? Um, what do I do about this? Um, how, how do I feel about this? And, um, and, um, cause in the past I would just blow up, mm. but, um, instead I kind of, uh, I did a little bit of both. I went to the front and I told the staff that it's loud and I can't sleep. And they kind of just looked at me like, and? <laughs> like, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then uh, I, and I tried to go back to sleep and I you know, thought that I, I should tell, try to figure out who, to, who else to tell or to get help. And, um, but eventually I ended up just doing laundry and taking a shower around 5 a.m. in the morning. So, um, and I was able to leave the shelter on good terms with so, the staff. So, so, you, so you found some independence from what was going on around you. Yeah. Like, uh, um, and then I also have been able to let go of the future, because usually I would start catastrophizing and being like, oh, tomorrow I'm not going to get sleep. The next day I'm not going to yeah. get sleep. And so um, I've been really grateful for that this yeah, morning. That's really wise. You're finding your way. Great to hear that. Thanks to you guys too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had I had um, last summer. I, I for a couple of weeks I slept in places that uh, there were. The, I think the minimum number of people in this was eight, and the maximum was two hundred. And um, the different places I stayed, and uh, and it was amazing the amount of snoring. <laughs> it was like, and some of the snoring was just like, like the next morning people say, "Did you hear that one?" <laughs> it, was, it was like ge- geese. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, but, but what was well, you know? It was just part of the deal. There was snoring. You know, that was part of the, th- the thing. And um, and so, the only thing to do was to accept it. 
And so I kind of treated it, so I started to notice that the snoring um, rose and fell, it got stronger. And so I kind of, kind of just kind of tuned into, not the snoring per se, but to how it rose and passed and changed over time. And it became more like the wind or more like a natural thing, except for that geese one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I thought, you know, at Spirit Rock, they have, um, uh, sometimes people have roommates, and, and we have these roommate issues, and especially when they snore. And I said, well, before anybody comes to, to on retreat at Spirit Rock, they should go stay where I stayed last summer <laughs> and learn what it's like to kind of accept such difficulties. Anyway, thank you for telling us. Okay, so um, thank you all very much, and uh, may your mindfulness help you be independent. <laughs>